O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Mark chapter 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, 
on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the field. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we come now to the end of our time in the season of Lent. And as you may remember, if you've been here over the last few weeks, we have been spending time looking through the Psalms to see not only in the celebratory thanksgiving-filled psalms, but also in the psalms of penitence and of lament and of sorrow, Jesus Christ is thoroughly present. We saw it in Psalm 23 and Psalm 130, that the Lord is near to those who are brokenhearted, and he is near to those who are in the throes of distress or in the, the situation which would come like a, like a, uh, like a threat against a life, this is the, our God. This is the God who redeems those who are surrounded by enemies. And so in Psalm 118, we see a grand vision that the psalmist is given by the Spirit of what it looks like when the Messiah, the Davidic king, comes into the city of God, Jerusalem, and then enters into the temple. I want to look at four aspects today, three in the text and one strictly with regard to application. First, I want to look at the distress that the Davidic king goes through in Psalm 118 because it speaks quite clearly concerning what I believe Jesus did in his earthly ministry. Then I want to look at the actual triumphal entry. One of the things that's important to keep in mind, even as we move to Easter with Good Friday looming on the horizon, this entry of Jesus Christ was a triumphal entry. It wasn't an entry like we might have at the beginning of one of our sports games. What happens? They come in, they're celebrating, they call out the players' names or they call out the team and they bust through some paper or plastic. There's fire gets thrown up into the air, confetti's going off. That's because of this paradigm. The triumphal entry was an idea of a king who has defeated the enemies in the land at at war coming into the city. And so even as we seek to apply this psalm to Jesus Christ, we have to remember that Jesus does not go into Jerusalem looking to be defeated. Indeed, as I hope to show today, we will see that Jesus went into Jerusalem having already won. 
That's a very interesting idea coming on the heels of the season of Lent because we're looking forward to, we know quite clearly what we're going to remember and celebrate on Good Friday, and yet I'm convinced based on this passage and on the passages that we'll look at in the New Testament, in the gospel specifically, that Jesus enters in triumph and the celebration and the praise that the people were giving to him was right. Many people respond and say, well, the same crowd that celebrated the triumphal entry just a few days later then called out, crucify him. And while that preaches really well, the scriptures don't support such a conclusion. There's nothing to suggest in the New Testament that the same group of people were shouting out Hosanna that were shouting out, crucify him. Now, it was indeed in both cases a crowd of people in Jerusalem. However, there are many people even in our city who would call out one thing or a next or the next. It was right for them as the people of Jerusalem to celebrate the Lord's entry, that Christ's entry. And yet, even though they quoted this psalm, it's probably the case that many of them missed what the psalm said, as is so easy to do. And so we'll be looking at how that triumphal entry was for a specific purpose. Jesus knew fully well what he was doing. And therefore, we ought to respond in thanksgiving. I want to look at, the clo- in the close, I want to look at how this psalm is addressing a chief problem in the people of Israel, and therefore in the people of God, is that we do not rightly thank God in our understanding of what was purchased for us at the cross and the love that was displayed to us rebellious sinners being transforming, that love which is transforming has made us into new people and therefore everywhere we go, we ought to be filled with thanksgiving at what the Lord is doing. So this psalm recounts a story of God's anointed king, a Davidic king, and he is unnamed on purpose. One of the things that this forces us to do is it it forces us to think very hard, okay, could this have happened during David's life or during Solomon's life or Jeroboam or Asa or or whatever king it could have possibly been, where was this psalm taking place? I'm convinced that this is the recording of an event and a retelling of that event in such a way that it might, by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, speak forward of something far greater. In this psalm, God's covenant faithfulness is shown to the people by him delivering their king. If you remember David and Goliath, the story that played out there was Goliath issued a challenge and David eventually responds, but the challenge was this, let's not have the armies fight, let's appoint a representative and whoever wins that, that will decide the outcome for the people. That is what God is doing in this psalm. He is showing steadfast love, covenant faithfulness to Israel by saving their king, their representative. While the king trusts confidently in the Lord throughout this entire psalm, what is more important to see is not the king's confidence in God, but that God is the one who fights for him. Verse 5, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered and set me free. The Lord is on my side. We, we, we theologians, we call this theocentricity, that it's, it's all about God. Everything in this psalm, and indeed the whole scriptures, centers upon what God is doing for this king. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me. The Lord is on my side as my helper. 
I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the Lord being a shield to the psalmist. And whoever in military scenarios, whoever is on your team is very important. In those days, they would carry a shield in their left and a sword on their right. Uh, The reason for this is most men are right dominant. 90% of people have strong preference of using their right hand as the precision hand. And so the shield holds a general protection, but what's on your right hand is very important because that's where the enemy is going to strike. The best defense is a good offense, right? So he wants to take out that your enemy wants to take out what's on your right hand. And over and over again, the scriptures describe the Lord being at our right hand. That's what's going on for this psalmist. The Lord is on my side as my helper. The Lord is right here in the midst of me being surrounded, as we're going to see in a few minutes. In the midst of being surrounded by these evil nations, the Lord is present to this king. As this king retells the story, he then speaks to the people and he commends to them that they too would put their trust in God. One of the difficulties about this psalm is that the voice and the audience constantly are shifting. Sometimes this king is speaking. At one point, a priest inside the temple responds. And then later, we're going to hear a choir or a chorus begin to sing God's praises and bless that king. And so this king then turns, and instead of making a general testimony, he then speaks directly to the people in verse 8 and 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. I preached on that only six weeks ago. You, you've got to go back and do your homework. I'm, I'm kidding. But, but this idea that this would be spoken by the king himself is quite startling. In our day, political leaders make promises. They are then elected and then they break those promises on, the, on day one and, the, and all the other days too. Here's, here's why I bring this up. This is not a normal human leader. A human leader does not tell his people, don't trust in people like me. Do you see those words? It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in a prince and by extension, a king. And it's the Davidic king who is telling his people that. This, I'm convinced, is a big indicator. You can think of it as highlighted letters or flashing text that the psalmist is trying to say, I want you to think hard. What kind of king would say that? What sort of human leader do you know would tell his people that? Knowing that God fights for those who trust in him, the king desires that the people trust in the Lord more than even in himself. This is what I believe a righteous ruler is like. And it's therefore our job to say, hmm, this sounds like a king that we've never encountered before, doesn't it? The king then more clearly describes the danger that he faced. Earlier he said, the Lord is on my side. What can man do to me? There's some sort of threat to my life. But now in verse 10 through 12 excuse me, 10 through 13, he then begins to describe with great clarity what was happening to him. 
In the time of Israel, the nations were not considered to be what they are today, just an independent collection of governmental lands and territories. In these days, for the Israelites, the nations were threats to their existence. So Egypt was the first encounter with a nation that Israel had. And the Lord delivered Israel from that nation. But then when they enter in the land, before they even get to the land, they are fighting against various nations. This all brings back to mind what Abraham had to do in fighting those five kings. One of my favorite one of those kings, his name is Chedor Lammer. And I just, I love that name because it's just so strange sounding. But this, this idea that this battle that Abraham and then his children, and now as the king has entered into the land, it's the same problem. There are foreign peoples who do not know Yahweh, who do not love Yahweh, and they hate those who love Yahweh. And so the nations are coming to surround this king. He's in the fight of his life quite clearly. All nations surrounded me, and in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. That's going to be an important thing to remember, that phrase, in the name of the Lord. They surrounded me. They surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I'm reminded of this movie, I think it's called Renaissance Man, in which Danny DeVito plays this character who is a very... He's not a very likable person at the beginning of the movie, and he comes in to tutor these army students who are um, not doing very well in their language. And so he's explaining the, the rhythm of Shakespeare, right? Do, does anybody remember this, or is this movie too old? A few of you remember this. This above all to thine own self be true. You might remember that moment in which he's highlighting the poetry of Shakespeare, and he's bringing the rhythm to the forefront so that they would catch what is going on. What I want you to see here in this passage is the psalmist is doing a very similar thing. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Three times the psalmist is highlighting there was a terrible tragedy around them, around him, and he executed God's victory. How? In his own strength, for his own fame? No, in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. It was right for me to defeat these nations, these nations who wanted to kill God's people. They surrounded me like bees. Have you ever encountered a very significant uh, bee or yellow jacket or hornet's nest? They say never to use illustrations in which you're the hero, so I'm going to do that. Um, In this scenario. So my my father and I, I believe I was maybe eight or 10 years old. Who knows how old I was? Younger than that. So um, I, we were going on a hike and it was somewhere in Yellow Springs, I believe. And so we, I decided I was going to go get some bulrushes out of the pond. There was a little stream and I was going to go get bulrushes, cat, cat tails, those little pokey things with brown on the top. And I was going to go collect them because I had seen them in cartoons and on television and I wanted some because those don't grow in Dayton. So I went to the bank of the water and I started to collect these things. And all of a sudden I hear my dad yell at me, John, run. And I didn't process what was going on. And then he, he told me to run again. And I had noticed that I had, it was the dead of winter and I had stepped into a yellow jacket's nest. And all over my legs were yellow jackets crawling up my jeans, trying to 
get to me. Now, in the grace of God, I don't remember getting stung basically ever. I think it was too cold for the bees or yellow jackets to be that active. However, there was really nothing I could do except to run to my dad, and he kind of helped me get away from the, the structure. But they were on me, and when I ran, they came with me. That's the way bees operate. When bees swarm, they don't just fly in the air and you can run away. They then land on you, and they stick to you. And they sting you by touching you and holding on to you. And some sorts of bees, yellow jackets, hornets, etc., they can sting you many times. The deliverance has to be close at hand, and the deliverance has to be very thorough, because bees can hide anywhere. So the point here is this, this psalmist is using this imagery of these bees swarming around him and surrounding him, and then he switches. It says, they went out like a fire among thorns. Have you ever lit a dry Christmas tree sometime in July? What happens, what happens to a, it goes up instantly. The reason is, is because the oils and the dryness of the wood and the leaves, they create an environment which the fire and the oxygen just swirl up. And, and this is what he's saying, that the nations were prepared to become like a boiling fire, a rolling fire that was around him. They went out like a fire among thorns. The nations surrounded him. He was caught in the middle of this terrible circumstance. And yet he says, in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I, put, I was pushed hard. In the Hebrew, this, this word actually is saying, I was, there was something tight that was encroaching upon me. And I was, I was like an animal surrounded on every side. Other Psalms use that imagery. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. There was nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, and yet God fought for him. And when it looked like in verse 13 that he was being squeezed off, you can think of it like a tourniquet or like uh, if you've ever tried to squeeze out the extra bits of a toothpaste, you get these little devices that help you squeeze off the last portion of that tube. That's what's going on. This Davidic king is about to be squeezed out of life. He's about to be cut off. And yet he says, and in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. The interplay here, the, the reversal of what took place is so beautiful and so important. In remembering God's salvation, then the king breaks out into song and he then tells the people this is what God has done for him. In verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. What's happened is that the victory of the king has then become the victory of his people. That he sings to the Lord, and then he goes on and says in the very next verse, therefore glad songs have arrived at the tents of the people. That the victory which he sings about in verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song, that same song then ripples through the nation, and the peoples receive his victory by proxy or by, by federal representation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Notice quite clearly these three repetitions. We've already seen the number three be used very early, just a, a few verses earlier in a very concrete way. What happened in the earlier part of the psalm? 
Three times the, the king said, in the name of the Lord I cut them off. And yet three times, again, this song rings out, it was the right hand of the Lord. It wasn't me. It was God working on my behalf. God working in my place. God working through my working. That's what the Lord is doing for this, this king. This king is saying, I cut off these nations, but it was the right hand of the Lord doing valiant, wonderful things. Three times he says this, the right hand of the Lord. And this harkens back, in fact, it's a direct quotation from the Song of Moses after God defeated Pharaoh and his chariots. In fact, in verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song, those are the first words of the Song of Moses. What's happened is the psalmist has said the victory that God gave me among the nations was just replaying the entire Exodus story. It's all coming back. It's all being redone. God is telling his people, I'm still with you, just like I was with Moses, just like I delivered the Israelites, so also I'm going to deliver your king. I'm going to deliver you from the Gentile nations. Though the king obediently fought, we can see quite clearly it was the Lord fighting for him, which was all more important. Now having defeated the enemies, this triumphant king then goes up to the city of God, Jerusalem, and wants to enter into the temple to give thanks to God. Remember, it's all about God's activity for this king. The king did obey but it was the Lord's power that worked through him which accomplished the victory. The Lord fought for his people. And, and the, the use of the Song of Moses is very important because we remember back when Moses is with the people and the chariots are coming and God tells him, stand back and see the salvation of the Lord. Isn't that an amazing thing that the Lord is going to fight for his people? So this king then wants to enter into the temple and give thanks. He then says, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Now here is where one of those voices or, or speakers change. Here I believe verse 20 is the priest responding to this king. He says, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. What's the gate of the Lord? We're going to see in just a few verses, the gate of the Lord is none other than the king himself, the king who wants to obey God's will. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Once the priest answers him, he enters and proclaims his thanksgiving. The reason I can say that I think this is a priest who's responding to this king is because in Israel in those days, when you came to the temple to worship, the priest would ask you what you're there to do. Are you here to offer a thanksgiving or a peace offering or a guilt offering or a sin offering? And then he, there would be a liturgy, a call and a response. Just like in churches today, often there's a confession of sins and an assurance of pardon. And there's a, there's a conversation between the worshiper and the priest. And so this priest addresses him. The king wants to enter and give thanks. And then in verse 21, he actually does give thanks. Now the king is talking directly to God. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. At this point, in the temple, a choir then responds and it begins to sing the story in a metaphor 
of what has just taken place with this king. The choir says in verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The the choir at this point recognizes this day, the day in which the king enters into the temple, as being the start of their festal activities. This is really when the party can get going, right? If you've ever been to a party for a Super Bowl party in GCF, you can tell what side was rooting for, you know, team A or team B. Who was it this year? Philadelphia Eagles and Logan. Everyone and Logan. Who won? Not Logan's team. You, you can tell. Why? Because the victory erupts into thanksgiving. The victory of this king, just as earlier, the Lord has become my song, and then he says, the songs of the Lord are in the tents of the righteous. And now he says, the Lord, he says, I thank you, God, that you've become my salvation. And then look, the choir takes up his song. He says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let's give thanks to our God who brought victory for our king. Therefore, they bless their king and they praise their God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you remember that phrase earlier in this psalm? What happened in the name of the Lord? He cut off the nations. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Therefore, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Many commentators say that this psalm was directly used in the Passover, that as the Israelites were going up to the temple, that they were remembering, and this is again why the Song of Moses connection is so important, because God is going to do a new Passover. The, the Israelites celebrated the destruction of Egypt after the Passover. And so God is doing this same thing again with his king. Now that God has brought victory, now it's time for them to actually begin to sacrifice and to, uh, to, to celebrate. Throughout Christ's life and ministry, he was exactly like this king. Now it's quite clear that this king is a noble king and a victorious king. But the question has to be asked, what does this say about Christ? And I think many places in this psalm are directly applicable to the life of Jesus in quite clear detail. Throughout his entire ministry, Christ was constantly surrounded by his enemies, both by his enemies who wanted to do him ill and by people who were simply his enemies who were carriers of evil. We, we saw that quite clearly when we were in the time of Mark before Lent, when the Lord is in the first chapter of Mark and, and the entire city surrounds him. He's at Peter in law's, uh, Peter's mother-in-law's house and the entire city shows up at the gates. I want you to just think about how kind Jesus Christ was in his earthly ministry. When I leave here today, I will have talked to probably 10 people on a one-on-one basis, and I will be exhausted later tonight. And I don't do that to, to communicate some sort of frustration, but rather my limitation as a human being, it, I can't minister to a whole city. And it says in that passage in Mark 1 that Jesus ministered and he healed all of them. And he stayed and ministered the entire night, the entire day. 
This is the kind of love that Jesus was expressing day by day, not just on the cross, but moment by moment as he ministered to people and constantly was laying down his life, not just at the cross. In Matthew and in Luke's Gospels, the very first encounter that we see of any sort of trial or temptation is Jesus goes up after the baptism and is then tested by the devil. And he defeats the devil's temptations by the word of God. He uses the word of God. He proclaims it and he puts his trust in God's promises and defeats the temptation of the enemy. At the start of Mark's gospel, as I mentioned, Jesus is surrounded by the whole town of people who are sick or oppressed by evil spirits. And yet he ministers all night. In Isaiah 53, it says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Another way to translate that is sicknesses. Throughout John's Gospels, uh, John's Gospel, the Jews were always trying to kill Jesus. In John 7 and John 8, there's comments that Jesus would not go into Judea because he knew they were trying to kill him. And later in John 10, 31 through 39, this same idea comes back, that these Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders of his day, were always trying to entrap him. At one point, they surround him to arrest him, and he slips out by the grace of God. At another point, they, it says they were trying to come and take him to make him king by force, and yet he wouldn't entrust himself to any of the people. Every time what was true for the Davidic king in Psalm 118 was true for Jesus, however... As Jesus enters Jerusalem, he enters as the true Messiah, this king who actually is the king that Psalm 118 was hinting at. But the king who rightfully claims the throne of David, according to this psalm, has to do something much more profound than simply defeat the nations outside the gates. He himself will be, in verse 27, he will become the chief focus of their festal activities, of their celebration before God. The Davidic king defeated the armies of the nations, but Jesus has defeated Satan, evil spirits, sickness, and all the powers of darkness. I want you to think about that for a second. Armies are powerful, but bullets do nothing against demonic spirits. Jesus is not just a military conqueror who's like his father David. He is the king of kings, lord of lords. He, is, he has all authority over all domains, invisible and visible. He has authority over kings and nations, but he has much greater power than that. He has authority over all evil spirits, over all angels, over Satan himself. Jesus demonstrates, I've defeated everyone in the land. However, there's one final thing that he has to defeat. For Christ's victory is even greater than what I've just mentioned. He also defeated the temptation to lay down his life unwillingly or to have it taken from him. This is how pure Christ's sacrifice was. He was not robbed of his life. He gave it away. That's why it's so important to understand what takes place in the word of God because we see the glories of Christ. We cannot believe that Jesus loves us if he's just a tragic accident of his country. If he was just stolen away and kidnapped and tried under false pretenses, all of which is true except for the fact that he went to Jerusalem intentionally. That's what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. That's why we give thanks to God. 
Though God had saved Jesus from death countless times in the Gospels, at this point in the triumphal entry, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing because he knew exactly why he had come. He did not only come to express the Father's heart in his public ministry, that he did. He also came to express the Father's heart of a desire to reconcile the world to him through offering up his life. That is how glorious and beautiful Jesus Christ is. Though he avoided Judea before, in John 7 or 8, I can't remember one, which I think it's 8, it says that he would not go into Judea because he knew they were killing him. But later in the Gospels, as we approach Palm Sunday, something totally changes. Jesus intentionally went to Jerusalem. Luke 9, 51, when the days drew near for him to be lifted up, that's the same word as taken up, for the, in, when the days drew near for him to be lifted up on the cross, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Later in Luke's gospel, Luke makes it again clear that Jesus resolved to finish his task. At that very hour, Luke 13, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. That's why it's so important to see Jesus does not just represent the love of the Father in the land he also goes to finish his course. Verse 33, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And in Isaiah, Isaiah uses this phrase that he set his face like flint. He would not be deterred from his goal. As Christ enters Jerusalem, therefore the people recognize him as their Messiah. And they quote this psalm in quite clear detail. Those who went before Jesus and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember that phrase? That's, they're quoting this psalm. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They recognize Jesus as the one to bring in the Davidic kingdom, the messianic kingdom. Hosanna in the highest. They quote Psalm 118, 25, and 26, which says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. It's very interesting to note that the word Hosanna, to us, that's a word of praise. It's kind of like Alleluia. It's a, it's a word which we sing, or it's a word which we say which means praise the Lord. However, these words, save us, are the words Hosanna. Originally, before it became a token or a, or a phrase, that word was quite literally asking God to save the people. And so they shout out to Jesus, save us. They look at Jesus, they quote this psalm, and God is saying something as they quote this psalm. God is saying, this is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. What does the one who comes, comes in the name of the Lord come to do? He comes to cut off the evil ones. In the psalm, three times this king boasts of his victory over evil. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off, right? All of the enemies of God's people in this psalm, in Psalm 118, get cut off in the name of the Lord. And then these people say, you're coming, Jesus, in the name of the Lord. Jesus comes to cut off the final enemies of God's people, namely 
the wrath of God which is rightly applied to sin. That is the final enemy which Jesus has to defeat, and after that, death and resurrection. Those two remaining enemies had not yet been completed by Jesus, and the way that he comes to cut off the final enemies of God's people is that unlike Psalm 118, he himself is going to be cut off. He totally reverses what they were expecting in this psalm, that the king would simply enter in and that they could, f- could fest- uh, festival or celebrate with him. But in this, in the Gospels, we see that Jesus comes in. He himself is, verse 27, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Knowing fully what our salvation would require, Jesus intentionally journeyed towards Jerusalem. He knew what was going to happen, and he really wanted to make it happen. How great is the love of Christ towards his people? This is why I said what the psalm's goal is to to help the people give thanks to God should become our goal as well. If Israel was supposed to rejoice and give thanks for a mere military victory, how much more should we rejoice in the light of what Christ has done? You see, Christ has not conquered enemies that perturb you. For example, I have a TV that it freezes almost every time we watch a show. Right? That seems trivial. But in that moment, I'm filled with anger and I want to write a strongly worded letter to Vizio. Christ hasn't defeated my problem of my TV. What he has defeated is he's defeated the problem of my rage and anger when I respond to my TV freezing. He's defeated the actual problem that I have in life, which is I still want to commit sins and one day I'm going to die. And I need someone who can defeat death for me. That's what Christ intentionally went into Jerusalem to do. He knew that he was to offer up his life. Hebrews 10, 5 through 7. You have prepared a body for me. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he comes to deliver the people from what they truly cannot defeat. They have no power over And so when we think about what we're going to celebrate in Good Friday and in Easter, we have to come with a mind of thanksgiving. It's it's so often the case that we will mourn on Good Friday or or, uh, shy away from the love of God and, and just focus on the necessity that our sins cause Christ to have to offer up his life. And that's true. It it did necessitate that. But it's called Good Friday. It's a celebration. What we do today, even in the midst of the season of Lent, this is a celebration. We're about to take a meal called the Eucharist, which is a giving of thanks. We ought to, as Christians, be constantly thankful and constantly rejoicing people because we're, we're always reminded our Jesus did not just defeat sickness. He defeated that which would cause me to be truly sick in soul forever. He didn't just defeat death. He also opened up the gates of life that I would be able to know and live with God forever and enjoy him. And now in Christ, by faith in him, because his blood has fully atoned for every single one of my sins, I will never experience the hostility and wrath of God. I will only receive blessing for eternity. And when I, by faith, take hold of the scriptures and have that applied to my heart, 
it should produce joy and thanksgiving and felicity. We should be skipping down the street if we fully understood what we have been given in Jesus Christ. You have my permission for the rest of the day to go around skipping. The point is that, that Lent celebrated wrongly creates a brokenness in us in which we only look at our sin. And yet this is what our Jesus, he loved you enough to take your sin, shame, and the guilt which was upon you, to take it upon himself. And he knew full well what he was doing. Jesus was not tricked out of his life. He willingly gave it up. So, He's triumphed over every power, set us free from bondage to sin, and has given us a new life, not only in this life, but a promise of a resurrection. It is right, therefore, to joyfully praise God, to shout, to clap. Again, going back to my Super Bowl example, have you ever seen a worshiper who worships better than at the Super Bowl? It's very rare that even as the people of God, we celebrate the victory of Christ more than we celebrate the victory of our quarterback. And I don't say that to shame you. I say that to liberate you. If your neighbor is offended by your exuberant display of joy, let them be offended. The victory of God for his people knows no limits. It will exist forever. It will not fade. The volume just constantly gets turned up for eternity. It doesn't stop. It doesn't go back. It doesn't, the speaker doesn't blow. This analogy is ended. Um, so... Where does this psalm end? You are my God, I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful that you have loved us. You loved us in your coming as you set aside your glory. You loved us in your humility as you subjected yourself to the authority of your parents. We love, you loved us in your defeat of the Pharisees and the Sadducees as they tried to trick you up in matters of the law and of God's word. You loved us as you took our sickness and cast out evil spirits from among your people. You loved us in coming into Jerusalem and offering up your life as a sacrifice. You loved us on the cross as you bore the wrath which was due to us. You loved us as you came out of that grave. You loved us as you ascended you loved us as you gave us apostles who wrote scripture. You loved us as you've preserved your church through your Holy Spirit. God, we ask you that you would help us, that our lives would be submerged and immersed in the things of what you've done in your life, death, and resurrection. We pray, Lord, that you would create in us thanksgiving. We repent, Lord, of the sort of living which never acknowledges what you've done for us. And we ask that by your spirit, you would give us grace to be able to constantly be thanking you and that that, that thanksgiving would spill over to others. We thank you so much for this wonderful celebration coming this week. We pray, Lord, that we would celebrate in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.